Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember, check out dormroomhistory.com to see the maps and all the other media that I have for this episode, or to donate if you really, really love the show. And make sure to give us a follow and a share. None of this would be possible without all of you. Last week, we talked about Su Qin and the first vertical alliance. Su Qin had essentially lied to each of the states individually to get them to join in on the greater plan. I lied might be a strong word. He couldn't just say straight up what was happening. These states would not cooperate otherwise. So he did what he had to do to get the ball across the line. And yeah, didn't always lie, but definitely told several states exactly what they wanted to hear. But getting the ball across the line doesn't mean victory. Because, using another dubious analogy, and yeah, I know, I am full of them. But, if this was sports, Su Qin scored a goal here. But if you watched the recent Bayern versus Barcelona game, well, scoring a goal doesn't always mean you win. And the Qin were Bayern, and they were going to score a lot. The weak foundation was the only way to create any alliance. We know that. But that weak foundation also led to the alliance falling apart. Moreover, before Su Qin died, as we talked about, he did become close to King Min of Qi. And King Min of Qi is still alive. And the idea of a massive alliance never left his head. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 19, Help Me Stop the Qin. King Min of the Qi State ascended to the throne in 300 BC, just as the Vertical Alliance and Su Qin neared their ends. But Su Qin was actually able to meet with King Min, and as we know from last week, other ministers were vying for the new king's ear, and they saw him as a threat, and they tried to kill Su Qin. But Su Qin lived just long enough to pull off just that one last chest move by orchestrating that plan with King Min to smoke out the assassins, by pretending that Su Qin was to be executed for treason. Anyway... Not all of the lords and ministers were in on this plot to kill Su Qin. And there were other ministers still around. And no one minister that was still around was more important to King Min and the Qi state as Lord Meng Chang would be. Before we continue, I want to reiterate how powerful the Qi were and still are. I've been hyping up the Qin a lot in the last couple episodes, and yeah, I know. And look, no wonder. They were arguably the most dominant state in ancient China at this time. But arguably. Because the Qi were also really, really powerful. And heck, maybe as powerful as the Qin, no one really knew. These were, in another bad analogy, the USSR and the United States in 1965. But of course in ancient China. Lord Meng Chang was smart, and so with Su Qin's influence still probably in the back of Qin Min's head, 
he authorized Meng Chang to make another alliance. This one, though, well, this one would be different. I probably should have mentioned this last episode, but hey, better late than never. But the fact is, the name Vertical Alliance comes from the fact that it was meant to be geographically vertical, as in north to south. And yeah, I know, it's confusing because nowadays, vertical and horizontal really just mean different levels of corporate alliance or geopolitical alliance. But at the time for this one, it is believed that it actually meant vertical as in north and south. The Han, the Zhao, Yan, Wei, and partly the Qi, because I mean they were half in, half out of the first vertical alliance. But at Su Qin roped in the Chu state, the alliance would have covered the northernmost points to the southernmost points in the ancient Chinese realm. Now, with that knowledge, now with that knowledge, we can ascertain almost immediately why Lord Meng Cheng was making something called the First Horizontal Alliance. While the First Vertical Alliance was too burned out and weak to seize upon the Qin state succession issues in around 307, by 300 BC, the Qin were still in some sort of hangover from all of that domestic struggle. Yeah, they had a new emperor and he was there to stay, but the fact was, they were still having to sort a couple things out. So Meng Chang of the Qi state went out to make an east-west alliance. And quickly, he was able to get the Han and the Wei states to join in. Because, I mean, while they've had their spats in the past here and there, generally by now, the Han and Wei have realized that, well, there's a strategic benefit to being quote-unquote allies at times. But those who have listened from day one might realize that someone's missing. Someone who should have probably joined, but didn't. Well, it was the other member of the now long-gone Three Jins. The Zhao. For some reason or another, the Zhao were not interested in this alliance. And maybe it's because of the shocking Luke-I-am-your-father-level plot twist that's about to happen because Lord Meng Chang was able to get the Qin state into this alliance. Boom. Lord Meng Chang knew that the Qin were still weak, and they were, yeah, metaphorically waking up from a hangover from their recent succession issue that we covered last episode. And he essentially told the Qin, look, you know we know, so probably best you protect yourselves by joining us. Because after all, we are the biggest threat to you. And what would a great ancient world alliance be without it being sealed by an interstate marriage? I mean, come on. You have to have one, right? Well, in around 300 BC, a Qin state princess was married to King Min of Qi himself. And so with that, the Qin-Qi alliance was sealed. And just like that, the states lived in perpetual harmony. Psych, obviously not. But not for the reasons why you could possibly think. And this is where it all kicks off, by the way. So strap in tight, because this is about to be an utterly wild ride. By 300 BC, every duke of every state had taken the title of king. Everyone except for one. The Zhao. 
but in 299 BC, the Duke of the Zhao became the seventh and final of the major states to declare himself king. And what do kings do? They make king-level moves. Now, this is definitely not what was going through the king of the Zhao state's head. He wasn't thinking, look, I'm the king now, it's time to act like one. No, obviously not. But he was about to make some big moves nonetheless. The Zhao state had just been frozen out of a Qi, Han, Wei, and Qin alliance, leaving them literally right in the middle of all of them, alone and with no friends. Anyone in the Zhao state could have probably sat back and realized that this precarious position was not one they could be in for very long. So do they just call on the Chu state, or do they call on someone else who is still in the metaphorical draft of unrestricted free agents that could be able to help? No. The Zhao state, instead, decided to drive a wedge into this historical horizontal alliance. And they did this by, get this, by going right up to the biggest player in the alliance in the form of the Qin state and offering them an alliance. Look, the Qin and the Qi were like the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany kind of allies right now. I've mentioned that already before. They are utterly disdaining of each other, but they are somehow allies at the moment. But the fact is, they were the two favorites to conquer the rest of the ancient Chinese realm. So they knew that they would probably maybe fight each other one day. So the Zhao, with this proposition, just leveled the odds for the Qin. And the Qin take it. Lord Meng Cheng of the Qi State had done the unthinkable by getting the Qin State into this alliance. And, well, it was now clear why it was unthinkable. Princesses and marriages don't matter too much here. Just power. And power only comes from what you can take and hold. Let's sit back for a second. I mean, what a zero-sum game this Warring States period has become. And that's what I love about history. Because you get times like this. People thought that there was no chance of a Great Powers War in 1914, because why would there be a Great Powers War? There was no reason these powers would want to fight. They have all of these interconnected trade networks, and they have economies to protect, etc. But the world always seems to end up being a zero-sum game at some point or another. The Qin and the Qi had connections. And now with this alliance, they were protected from the only threats they had, which literally were each other. But again, the world eventually becomes a zero-sum game. So probably to his shock and fear and disappointment and all the other emotions similar to those, Lord Meng Cheng is told to pack his bags and get the heck out of the Qin state. But no, they didn't say that. The Qin were not actually going to let him go. So Lord Meng Cheng had to escape. So this is the story. Now, if you looked at the website post for last week's episode, I included some pictures of the Hangu Pass. So if you go back and see them, you'll realize that passing this is going to be hard. According to his own biographies, 
those of course being of Lord Mengchang, the guards at the Hangu Pass would not let anybody through the gates until the cock crowed at dawn. Lord Mengchang turned to his little entourage for help, and it turns out one of his aides could imitate all types of sounds. Could he make the sound of a rooster? Well, it turns out he could. And one of Lord Meng Chang's aides crowed like a rooster, and he did it so well that he woke up the rest of the roosters. And now, remember, there's no modern communication, so not knowing that Lord Meng Chang was now actively being hunted, the guards at the pass then allowed Lord Meng Chang and his entourage to enter the Qi territory safely. Remember, they had to do this fast before they found out. So with this wonderful little tidbit of history, they imitate the sound of a rooster, wake the other roosters up, and the guards say, well, we're open for business. We don't know that you're a hunted man, and they let him right through. But the Qi and the rest of the alliance did not take this news of the new Zhao-Qin alliance sitting down. Because in 298 BC, the Qi, the Han, and the Wei got together and decided to strike the first blow before the Zhao and the Qin could consolidate their respective alliance. So they went right up the Yellow River and went right to the Hangu Pass. So for the next three years, the Qin fought the three-state alliance, but it was a slog and the Qin were slowly pushed back beyond the pass and had to cede land back to the Han in the way. Not the end of the world, but definitely a notable setback to the Qin. So, now already with a head of steam, and now fully experienced with working with each other, the Han and the Wei alliance with, yes, the Qi at the top, spent the next couple years taking huge chunks of land from the Yan state and the Chu state through a litany of decisive victories. From about 298 BC to about 294 BC, the Qi, with the help of Lord Meng Chang, had essentially reclaimed the title as the sole major power in China. But in 294 BC, things would change. And they would change really fast. King Min of Qi, in short, was... How do I put this? Well, he was not the most loved guy in the whole world, let alone in his own state. According to the annals of Liu Bu Wei, quote, All of King Min's assessment were like this, foolish, which is why his state was destroyed and his person placed in harm's way, end quote. King Min was, uh, let's be real, he was a predictable despot. He had his critics executed, sometimes in cruel ways, such as being boiled alive or cut in two at the waist, according to some of the ancient sources. And obviously this paranoia gradually alienated the common folk. It alienated his own royal clan. But it also alienated his own great ministers. And one of those ministers that he rubbed the wrong way was Lord Meng Chang, who was now Chancellor of the Qi State. So in 294 BC, after he had essentially played the vital role in bringing the Qi 
back to the top, Lord Meng Chang was implicated in an attempted coup to overthrow King Min. And look, based on the reports we have from back then, the Qi would have probably been better off without the foolish and so far awful king. But somehow, even after being implicated in a coup, yet again, Meng Chang escaped. He was able to evade capture, and this time fled to the Wei state. But okay, see if you can guess what happens next. A large, successful, and complicated alliance is held together by an extremely capable man, that being Lord-slash-Chancellor Meng Chang. He brings in and keeps the most powerful state in China in the whole thing. You know, he keeps him in the alliance. But when he fails to overthrow the king, all of Meng Chang's authority over the Qi position in the alliance vanishes. And all of that responsibility falls to a notoriously stupid king. If you guessed that that alliance immediately capitulates, well, you're right. It utterly disintegrates the moment Meng Chang flees. And just like before this drama unfolded, the Qin and the Qi once again made a truce. But this time, it was to let one another do as they pleased. You know, you stick to your business, I stick to mine, we won't bother each other. But they were going to plan to take out the Zhao one of these days. King Min and the Qi, in the meantime, decided to look towards the Song state for new conquest. But the Qin state, well, the Qin state looked to do something daring. The Qin were going to take a shot at the Han Wei alliance. Remember, when the Horizontal Alliance was at full strength in around 298 BC, the Han and the Wei states got back their lost territories. But their big ally, and probably the reason they were able to do it, the Qi, well, the Qi weren't there anymore. And as we know, the Wei and the Han aren't really that great of friends. But regardless, in 294 BC, the Qin leadership tapped General Bai Qi to lead a 120,000-manned army into the Han state. General Bai Qi wasted no time and immediately attacked the Han and took an important fortress. Upon realizing this invasion, the Wei and the Han realized, well, yeah, the Qin are really strong, and solidified their own alliance to stop the Qin. In 294 BC, as I said, the Han and Wei realized that the threat from the Qin was very real, and so they gathered a casual 240,000-man army to face the Qin. Combined forces, obviously. Now, for context here, a few decades later from where we are now, the Romans would field their biggest army yet at 86,000 men to fight a 50,000-man Carthaginian army at the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC. Those two armies in one of the most famous and brutal battles of all time, combined, barely outnumber the weaker side in this encounter, who is almost half as strong as the stronger side. We always think of both of those two sides in the Punic Wars as being massive and whatnot. 
But the scale and the scope of ancient China is just simply from a higher league. The Romans had pilum spears. The Chinese had crossbows. Already. The crossbows were a weapon attributed to the Middle Ages. We're a long way from there, Europe. But anyway, tangent, I know. So back to the story. The battleground was called Yi Chue, and it was not really one place. It was actually a vast area including several cities, five fortresses, and a bunch of defensive positions along rivers and mountain ranges. And yeah, Bai Qi had 120,000 men, which is an astounding number. But that was still dwarfed by the Han and the Wei's combined army. But history... Well, history is a funny thing. And instead of immediately acting upon their huge manpower superiority, the alliance of the Han and Wei instead decided to stand in fear of the Qin state's better trained and better equipped troops. And they decided, look, we might have more men, but we're not dealing with that right now. And so they decided on something which we now can say is questionable. Yeah, it's questionable. They decided on a passive defense. The battle became a stalemate. But several months later, and by now it's 293 BC, Bai Qi noticed something. He noticed that the Wei and the Han were still somewhat hostile to each other, which you would imagine would be weird to do because guess what? You have a common enemy. But the fact is, Bai Qi, and yeah, speaking of Rome, decided to engage in the divide-and-conquer strategy. Now, just as Sun Tzu wrote, or didn't, because he wasn't real, or kind of wrote it, whatever, Bai Qi of the Qin state began looking intensely for any weaknesses in his enemy. Remember, that's a huge part of the art of war. Espionage, finding weaknesses, you get the picture. What were Bai Qi's findings? Well, he confirmed the fact that the Wei and the Han weren't that great of friends. So he began to do something different. He began to draw the attention away from the main Han forces and began to pick them off with small ambushes. And now while the Han were chasing these sort of, you know, diversions, the Qin army would then attack the now weakly defended Wei positions with the big Qin army, the main army. He would draw away the Han and then attack the Wei. But why? Well, because this led the officers of the Wei state to mistrust the Han, and even got them to believe that the Han were deliberately failing to support them. Talk about a great masterstroke of strategy from the Qin state. Anyway, hostilities between the two allies began to bubble. The Han decided, look, we're not doing this anymore, and they decided to preserve their forces and cease supporting the Wei. And just like that, Bai Qi was able to divide and conquer, because he was now able to not fight against the Han forces, and instead, over the next few months, was able to sweep up the Wei positions one by one. And well, once he was done defeating the Wei, he then turned his army right to the Han and beat them down. Eventually, Bai Qi of the Qin state trapped the rest of the Han troops. And look, they tried to escape, but look, the Qin cavalry was really good and it made sure that nobody survived. And in all of this chaos, 
the Alliance commander himself was captured. Eventually, the Han and the Wei, well, they were defeated. Their entire armies were destroyed. And they sued for peace on the conditions that they ceded large swaths of land. For the first time, really. And they kind of did it before, but this is really the first time. It's the first time that the Qin made a real move into central China, where all the power had been for hundreds of years. Yeah, they had taken some territory off both, but now they were taking big, big chunks of it. And they were going to be there to stay. The Wei and Han, though, well, I've already said it, they had been crushed. And so with no actual effective militaries for either one of them, it was only a matter of time until the Qin decided it was time to finish the job. In the meantime, King Min is about to burn down the only real threat the Qin could ever think of facing. Because, well, he's going to burn down his own state, the Qi. But that is a story for next week. Next week, the Qin begin to one by one conquer the major states. And only the Qi could really dream of stopping them. Or maybe another alliance, who knows. But the fact is, the king of the Qi is actively turning the state into a literal dumpster fire. So, thank you so much for listening, and be sure to check out dormroomhistory.com slash thehistoryofchina for more. And follow our new Twitter account with the at dormroomhistory, or you could just search up the history of China. Give us a follow, and I'll see you all next week on the history of China.